All right, good morning, everybody. My name is Seth. I'm one of the teaching pastors here on staff, and I get to unfold this text for us this morning. It is a, uh, it is, we are about probably two-thirds through the book of Revelation, and it's going to start to feel a little bit redundant if you've been with us every single week so far. It's once again, I feel like a politician. I'm here once again talking to you, uh, asking you for, uh, to take God's wrath seriously. You know, that's kind of how it feels. You know, like it, oh, oh, God's wrath again. Here we go. And, and I think that even the fact that it's so reiterated uh, throughout this book, that it's another seven, so I'm teaching it today out of uh, Revelation 15 and 16. It's on the seven bowls of God's wrath. Previously, we've seen the seven trumpets of wrath, and we've seen the seven seals of wrath. And we have to ask the question, like, what does God see in us that he feels like we need to hear this again and again and again? That's the question, right? Because we, as humans, so often feel like we can hear something once and then get it and move on. Uh, but he is here saying like, no, you have to watch this again. Watch this movie again. Uh, you, you're not quite getting how serious the wrath of God is yet. And the whole point of this book of Revelation is to sober us up, to wake us up. Uh, the, the way this book is going to drive, at least this section is going to drive, is I'm teaching 15 and 16. And at the middle of 16, Jesus' voice calls out in Revelation 16, verse 15. It says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on. I was going to title this sermon, Stay Woke and Keep Your Pants On. But I <laughs> didn't want to have to explain that on the front end. But stay awake. Stay awake. Keep your garments on. Stay woke. Keep your pants on. Like this is like this. Be ready for action. Eyes open. What are you doing? And unless we see ourselves as vulnerable to being uh, lulled into embarrassing circumstances, pants off, or being lulled into kind of moral complacency, sleepiness, stay awake, we're going to be like, okay, John, you made your point. But I'm just saying we're all vulnerable to this. And the wrath of God is here to sober us up, wake us up, and prepare us. And so this is part of the point of the book of Revelation. Here's some Revelation reminders as we get going. Is it says, uh, number one, is that the book of Revelation is less about predicting and more about preparing. This isn't about looking down the quarter of time and taking a guess at what's going on. This is saying, here's what's coming, be ready. Here's what's going on, be ready. It's, it's unveiling, it's revealing. That's what the word revelation means. It's pulling back the curtain on what's actually going on in the world. Number two, um, it's more about a warning. It's, it's preemptively warning about our temptation to compromise. That if you are a follower of Jesus and you think you're not at least some degree vulnerable to compromise, this book is here to wake us up and say, no, you are. And that's not a shameful reality, that's a human reality. We all want to be approved of, accepted, loved, that's normal, natural, and generally healthy. The question is, are we willing to compromise in order to be loved and approved of by the wrong people or the wrong persons or the wrong organizations or the wrong uh, leaders? Rather than seeking the approval of man, we ought to seek the approval of God. Number three, Revelation isn't written, uh, wasn't written to us, but it's written for us. Meaning it was written to really seven churches in that first century. And so it can't mean to us what it didn't mean to them. And so we're going to try and get into their headspace and, and interpret the book through that lens. And so what we're going to see here is these seven bowls of wrath. 
And the way it works is there's uh, uh, six of them, Jesus speaks, and then a last one. And what I want us to do is look closely at what this text teaches us about God's wrath and then ask the question of ourselves, what are we going to do about it, the so what of that? So let me pray, and I hope we can all just like, let's take a moment and just ask God to help us see our need to hear this this morning. Holy Spirit, as we teach through Revelation and try to sit under your word, I ask that you would uh, sober us up, that we who think we maybe don't need this would be uh, shaken awake, we who want to minimize your wrath and take it for granted, uh, that we would uh, have an appropriate amount of fear. God, this word is uh, for us. I pray that we can sit under it. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so we got these seven bowls. Now, a reminder, like seven is this picture of perfection, right? We had seven seals and we had uh, seven trumpets. Now we have uh, seven bowls. And these bowls, like the original word for bowl is just, it's a bowl. You know, it's a something you drink out of. And so God is putting his wrath in the bowl and these wrath gets poured out. And so there's these seven bowls. And so let's look at them together. The first bowl we got um, has to do with these harmful and painful sores. It's chapter 16, verse 2. These sores on the skin. What is inside comes to the outside. That People's ugliness of their hearts comes onto the surface. Number two, the second angel, verse three, pours out his bowl and the sea becomes like blood. The third one pours out his bowl and the rivers um, become like blood. And then the fourth one comes out and they pour it out and it's this severe sunburn situation. That's, that bowl's always being poured out in July in Arizona. It's a... Uh, it's the, the, he pours the bowl out on the sun, and the sun glows extra hot, and people are scorched by the heat. And there's a pause here after this one, after four. It says, um, they were scorched with the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. Uh, they did not repent and give him glory. Then the fifth angel pours out his bowl, and they're plunged into darkness, and people are gnawing their teeth in anguish. And then it says again, and they cursed God for their pain and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. And the sixth angel pours out his blood, and the river dries up, and there's a severe drought in the land, and they're thirsty. And then also these false prophets come out and start misleading people uh, and offering false signs. It says they're demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the world and assemble them for battle on the great day against the Almighty. And so what ends up happening here is, on addition to the drought, you have these kind of false prophets, false demons, performing signs and deeds in the name of God. Then Jesus speaks, says, stay woke, keep your pants on. And then the next verse, we get to the seventh book, angel pours out a bowl, and it says, it is done, the wrath of God uh, uh, is poured out, and these hailstones and earthquakes demolish the whole place. So that is Revelation 16, that is the seven bowls of wrath. And it's not a good time. They add to each other. They escalate. And now if you've uh, read the book of Exodus, you can see how these plagues are a direct image or parallel to so many of the plagues that happen uh, when God is trying to liberate his oppressed people from Pharaoh um, in Egypt. That God is pouring out his judgment on Egypt so that those who are oppressed might uh, go free, and re Egypt continues to not repent. And this is the, the picture that we see in this, is that God is, again, trying to get people to repent, that God pouring out his wrath on Egypt in Pharaoh was actually, to some degree, 
him giving Pharaoh the opportunity to repent and he wouldn't do it. And so here's what we see in these, these pictures of God's wrath. One is it's not good. You're supposed to be a little bit horrified. Whew. You know, I, I just zoomed over that really fast. But you can imagine the difficulty of being poured out. Like this is like when it rains, it pours. And we as like Western, civilized, industrious, clean, bathed people, we just don't like the idea of God's wrath. Right? We don't like it. We, people say things like, I can never believe in a God who blank. I can never worship that God who blank. And dealing with the wrath of God is unpleasant, but it's not something that we have the option of dealing with. Right? As I'm preparing to teach this, I'm like, this is just kind of brutal. And this whole week I've been watching the news, last two weeks watched the news a ton. And I've been, I've had, I've had more probably uh, boiling rage in my, in my gut than I've had in a long time. And I, to the point where like I met with my counselor and I was like, Am I losing it here? Because I got a lot of pent up uh, boiling rage, you know? Help me work through appropriate, inappropriate, right? And I think about, you know, so I'm, I don't know if you guys, all of you know this, but I'm a Jewish uh, person, so ethnicity, right? And so you see Hamas reenacting Nazi war crimes and you think, oh wow, um, humans are evil, but they're not creative. Then I read about in the Netherlands how they're now uh, exterminating or euthanizing people with uh, atypical neurodevelopment. And I read in Canada about bills being pushed forward that support infanticide. And then I see the anti-Semitism being reenacted here in the United States all over the place. And I see various forms of white supremacy playing out across the South and especially online. And I see uh, child abuse being promoted as care. And you start to feel like, oh, maybe I can get on board with some of this wrath stuff. That when you really have an eye to see that sin is not arbitrary, it's not God going eeny, meeny, miny, mo, that's allowed, that's not allowed, but God's actually acting as a father for the benefit of human flourishing when he decides that he hates this and he loves this, it's not because he's just trying to create a system of rules for people to have to jump through, but he actually knows what's best for the world and he's saying, stop assaulting my image bearers. And I think that for people who are generally wealthy, who have generally not suffered very much, it's easy to stand at a distance and go, I could never worship a God who has wrath. But if you've seen real evil play out, if you've been oppressed, if you've been abused, if you've been like severely mistreated, if you've seen like the depths of evil uh, and, and misjudgment, and I'm not just saying like, I'm not necessarily arguing the world is getting more and more evil, but it's definitely getting more and more coverage because there's now like cell phone cameras everywhere, you know? So I don't really wanna like draw a chart on how evil it is. I'm just saying it's definitely more visible now uh, thanks to the internet, but I feel like getting on board with the fact that God has wrath 
should be right now easier than ever. Because you see real evil that deserves some type of recompense. Now, I think the real reason we don't like the fact that God might be wrath, like have wrath or is wrathful, is because we see like our own fallen sense of justice and wrath, right? Like I get bent out of shape about dumb stuff all the time, right? Like I can be watching a football game and like really want to kill the referee, you know, like. And then you like take a second and you go step back and you're like, Okay, maybe I'm not the greatest judge of what deserves or what doesn't deserve. You know, I could be watching you know, a three-year-old soccer game and some kid throws an elbow and I'm like, get him out of here! You know, and it's just like... <laughs> like, appropriately so, because we see humans uh, butchering justice all the time, you know, and it, it seemed like the question of, like, death penalty, right? Like, it's, 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 it's more a question of, like, can, like, a state meaningfully execute justice or not, right? Because systems are broken even when they're good, right? Like, like the human error is a very real question. We have to, my human error, your human error, our collective human error. And so we're, we're nervous about, we've only ever seen wrath and justice executed okay at best or terribly at worst. And so we're nervous about God. But the difference is like God's wrath is not like our wrath. He's not just riled up. He's not tossed to and fro. He's not blinded with bias. He's not self-serving or inconsistent. It's actually perfect. And so here's what this, this text actually shows us about the goodness of God's wrath, about God's wrath in particular. Number one is that it's just. That should be enough. But we actually get more than that. Number one, so just, chapter 16, verse 5. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. That is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. That God sees all, he knows all, he understands all, he discerns all, he sees right through the fog, he sees right through the, 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 the muck, he sees right through people's manipulation, he sees right to the heart, right to the guts, he understands, and he is the perfect, absolutely righteous judge. And so we can get on board with God's wrath because he is absolutely just. That should be both encouraging and a little scary. Because we're great at lying to ourselves. And guess what? God isn't by it. God is just. Uh, number two, it's incremental. It's in phases, right? So part of what we see here is that this wrath is poured out in seven phases. And it escalates. That it, it's, it's, it's measured. That we tend to like explode with wrath and shoot from the hip once we like get... Um, beyond triggered, you know, flip our lid and it's like, ah, you know, we, like if we're pretty good at keeping it down, then we flip our lid, you know, like the, the, the kid asks a question, the kid asks a question, and, and the ninth time the kid asks a question, it's like, I already answered that question. And we're, we're, we are temperamental uh, people, but God is measured and incremental and on purpose. And the third thing is that it, it escalates, right? There's this, uh, you know, the number three, or it's deliberate, it's on purpose, that the pictures that we get here of his wrath are actually previous pictures, that he's not just throwing stuff out at random and seeing what sticks, but he's on purpose of revealing part of his reality, that this is calculated, measured, 
thoughtful. He's not reactive or reacting. He is teaching even as he is pouring out his wrath. Number four, it's perfect. Partly that is revealed in the fact that there's seven, right? And partially in the fact that it is final and full. We hear this, uh, this word here is used. It is done. Uh, it is finished at the beginning of 15 and at the end of 15. Uh, it says that there's seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For them is the wrath of God is finished. That word is telos, meaning like the end or the final. At the end of 16, it says no one could enter the sanctuary when the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. It's final. That we're never quite sure. Is the wrath gone or is there still more there? But God pours it all out and it's perfect and final and beautiful. Number five, it escalates. Right, so... This is the third of seven wrathings we saw, right? This is kind of like this hat trick situation. So the first time, the seven seals, a quarter of the earth is burned or destroyed. The next time, the seven trumpets, it's a third. And here, the seven bowls, it's unlimited. It's all. It's total. That just like kind of when you're parenting, it's like, okay, the answer is no. Okay, there's like escalating consequences when there's repeat behaviors. You know, I don't think parents should be escalating their wrath against their children. That's probably not healthy. But appropriate escalating consequences, right? That God's wrath is measured and it escalates. And here, this is the final one. It is, this is when it's finished. This is the final, it's poured out. It is done, he says. And there's an escalation involved. It's total. This is the last piece before we see the end of the book escalate. Number five, or number six, um, it's mediated. That God often mediates his wrath through people. Here it says that he sends the seven angels and they pour out the bowls. It's similar in, Revel- in the book of uh, Romans 13 when God says that the, the, the government bears the sword of God's wrath against the evildoer. That God often works through people to accomplish his wrath, right? So this is another example of self-restraint that God is including and delegating. He's not just uh, spouting off. And then number seven, it's merciful, we see this reiterated in 16.9. They did not repent or give him glory. They didn't, in 16.11, they did not repent of their deeds. That every step along the way, there's opportunities to repent, but people continue to curse God. And even the way it ends is after these hailstones, 100 pounds each, fall from heaven on the people, it says they cursed God because the plagues were severe. We have this like thought in our mind that there will be people in hell who are like, if only I had the chance to repent. Uh, like it's too late for me, right? Like we, we think, oh no, it's too late. And pe- like as though there are people in hell who really want to be in heaven. But part of what this is teaching is no, there's nobody in hell that wants to be in heaven. The people who are in hell are still cursing God, not wanting to be close to him, not loving him, not wanting to repent. C.S. Lewis said that the gates of heaven, or gates of hell are locked from the inside. This is the picture we get right here, is that every step along the way, God is inviting repentance, and all the way to the end, it is saying they continue to curse God. This is the darkness of the human heart. This is the darkness of the human spirit. This is the difficulty of facing off with the holy God. Now the question for us we have to ask is, what, so what, right? Like I, 
this is the third iteration, seven things of holy smokes, literally. <laughs> like, what's our reaction to be? Just like, all right, everyone, yeah, don't go to hell. That would be, yeah. is that the so what? No, but I, I think there's actually three things for us to contemplate. Like, the, what's the effect of this text for us? Like, for us as a church, right? If you're not a Christian here today, the effect for you is please repent. Do not let bitterness that's somehow developed in your heart against God endure forever. Like now's the time to like get right with God, not some other time. Uh, repent and believe in Jesus, that he's died for your sins and risen from the dead. But it, it, that's, if you're not a Christian, that's the so what for you. But for those of us who are Christians in the room, what's the so what for us? Just like kind of wipe your forehead and be like, whew, missed that one. Lucky, lucky me. Um, uh, no. So we're going to talk about the, the things for us, our response. Uh, you can click to the next slide there. So number one is worship. Now this feels weird. I remember reading this text as like a high school kid and it's like the wrath of God's being poured out on people and it's just like wild, right? Like I think uh, there's two times that I read the Bible when I was in middle school and high school. Uh, Everything else, I was like, people like, you should read your Bible. And I was like, no thanks, that's boring. And that's kind of how it went in high school. Then in high school, I went to middle school camp and they said, you young boys should not be reading Song of Songs because that's like for grown-ups. And I was like, okay. And I, after a free time, I went and read Song of Songs. <laughs> Looked up all the cool words in that book. You know, I was like, they got me reading the book, you know. And the other time was when they said that like Revelation was kind of like reading Braveheart. <laughs> you know, like it's just this like violent war thing. And as a, as a middle school boy, I'm like, yeah, God's awesome. You know, and I went and read the, this like, violent destruction. But then I also like remember being like frankly like shocked at the wrath of God is pouring out. And in the middle of that, you have these saints singing worship songs. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Feels a little tone deaf, right? A little insensitive. Folks are having the wrath of God poured out on them and we're saying, great are your deeds? Like this is not talking about like praising God for like making awesome trees and rivers. This is talking to God about the deed of pouring out his wrath. We're gonna praise God for pouring out his wrath? It feels wild. But the answer is yes, we will. It's power. Same reason I went and saw Oppenheimer this summer and there's like that scene where they first test off the, the uh, nuclear bomb in, in uh, New Mexico and it's just like the fire and the explosion and there's like this picture of reverence and awe because power is awesome, literally. My son's a four-year-old. We had a monster truck themed birthday party. Why? Because power is awesome. <laughs> it evokes awe. It evokes wonder, worship. Jay does not, my son, he's not interested in which monster truck is the slowest. He's interested in which one is the fastest. He's not interested in which monster truck can't crush cars. He's interested in which one crushes the most cars. He's not interested in which car's normal size. He's interested in the biggest, strongest, slammest that God designed us to wonder at power. And when God reveals his power, we worship. And it says here that they sing the song of Moses. Let me tell you about the song of Moses. I think I have this, this text up here. 
Go next slide. Then Moses, so this is after God's freeing his people from Egypt and they're going across the dry land and God parts the Red Sea and the Red Sea comes together and destroys the oppressive Pharaoh's army. It says, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I'll praise him. My father's God and I'll exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Revelation 15 says, we will sing the song of Moses. That's the song of Moses. Great and amazing are your deeds. The Lord is a warrior. He destroys oppressors. Worship. The other thing we see in this is is an allusion back to Isaiah chapter 6. You can throw that verse up there as well. When Isaiah is taken into the throne room, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe was filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim, which had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. The house was filled with smoke. Here we see that in 15. That after they sing, it says, uh, 15 verse 5. And as I looked in the sanctuary of the tent, the witness of heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came seven angels holding the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with gold sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels the seven bowls. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could even go in before the plagues were poured out. That the picture we get in chapter 15 before we get to chapter 16 is that the worst of God at the demonstration of his power even precedes him pouring out his, pow- his wrath upon those who refuse to repent. That when God is showing us what he's capable of, like the roar of many waters, like the, the thunder clap that hits, like the monster truck engine that roars, we will, whether you want to or not, say, holy, holy, holy. It will not even be a real choice You will be overcome and taken with awe and wonder when you see the Holy One of Israel demonstrating his authority and his power. Like when you're really caught up in a sports game and there's a touchdown, nobody just makes this rational, calculated choice, I will cheer now. You're just overcome, yes! Worship is a precognitive response to wonder. Your body sees awesome and you're aroused, awakened. And if we think that we have to constantly be apologizing for the fact that God will destroy the oppressors and the unrepentant, I'm telling you, you will be surprised at how much you love the fact that God is powerful. I'm not telling you should, I'm telling you will. Because his awesome power will be captivating and it will be difficult to look away. Uh, Number two, after worship, stay awake. Or stay woke if you want to say it more more fun. So just like in the seven trumpets. Now remind me back. The seven trumpets. There's six trumpets and then there's like an interlude. And the interlude was, hey, take the scroll, eat it, make your stomach bitter. And then bear witness wearing sackcloth. 
here the same structure happens. Is there's the six bulls, then Jesus, his voice cries out. If your, book, if your Bible has like the red letter thing, then ch- chapter 16, verse 15 is in red letters. There's like the six, Jesus cries out, and then the final judgment's poured out. So it's meant to be a picture to us of like how we're supposed to be in the middle of God pouring out his wrath and his judgment. And here's what it says. Behold, I am coming like a thief. That means you won't see it coming. Right? Nobody knows the day or the hour. This is part of the reason why I think Revelation should not be read as predictions. Is because the whole point of I'm coming like a thief is you're not going to know. But what he says, I'm coming like a thief. Be blessed is the one who stays awake. Now I don't know if any of you have ever had the experience of falling asleep at an inappropriate time. But I've seen some of you do it during my sermons. No, I, I, I remember there's times, most of my wife went to U of A, boo. You know, I went, to, I went to ASU, go Devils, you know. One day they'll win two games maybe. You know, but they, uh, so I would drive down to U of A like maybe once or twice a month and it's just the boringest drive ever to Tucson, you know. One, because it's Tucson, you know, and you're just, but there's, there's times I was tired, you know, and I'm driving down to Tucson. And uh, you're driving, and there's like the overpasses you go under, right? And you're getting tired. I remember seeing like an overpass, you know, quarter mile up in the road. I blink, open my eyes, overpass is behind me. You know, and it's just like this, guess I fell asleep for about four seconds. You know, I don't know. You know, and it's like the adrenaline hits. You sweat through your clothes. You roll down the window, right? And, and you, this like stay awake thing is part of what the exhortation is. It's like, do you not realize that you are being lulled to sleep? This is the great, like, I don't know if any of you are conspiracy theorists or not, but I'm gonna tell you, this is a conspiracy against you to lull you into complacency with the world, to not stay vigilant, to not stay sober, to get kind of like lulled, like, especially the more money you make, the further you get removed from suffering, the more at home you feel in the world, like you, you, you're being lulled to sleep. And this is actually the verse that like the, the majority black church appeals to all the time. When they say stay woke, what they're saying is don't get comfortable with the world. See what's really going on. What's really going on is you're not of this world. What's really going on is this world is not here to serve you. What's really going on is stay vigilant, keep your eyes open. The book of Revelation is like getting those like ammonia smelling salts and taking a good rip off it. You know, and it's like, like getting flicked on the inside of your skull. That's what's going on here. We have to ask ourselves the question, where am I getting lulled to sleep as I become more comfortable with the world? Stay awake. The next thing it says is this. Keep your garments on, or keep your pants on, that you may not go about naked and be seen exposed. What's this picture here? I think it's saying exactly what you think it's saying, right? There's like this uh, appropriate shame, embarrassment that comes if you got walked in on doing something you shouldn't be doing, right? It's... So my, my, my daughter, Olivia, is 18, 20 months, something like that. And I, she turns two in January, so do the math. But she's, 
she's like beginning like the moral compass thing, you know, and it's kind of developing. She knows what she shouldn't be doing, should be doing. And she has, you know, markers. She likes to draw on them. And every now and then she's like drawing and there's a wall right there and it's like, she looks at you and it's like, <laughs> nope. And she's like, oh, yeah, just, I wasn't going to do it, you know. Just, and you leave the room and you come back and she's drawing on the wall, you know. <laughs> and you walk in the room and it's like, Olivia. And she goes, Boop. she like drops the markers and was like, acts like, I don't know what you're talking about. Those are just there. The dog did that. And you, that like, but that's the, that's the embarrassment response. Oh, you know, you kind of, oh, what happened to the wall? I don't know. You know, and, and you can see the, the shock and the embarrassment. And like, here, so here's a good moral test for you to decide, should I do this? Should I not do this? If Jesus walked into the room, would you like change the subject of the conversation? If the person you're talking about walked into the room, would you change the way you're talking about them? If you found out that there was a live feed, would you have to like apologize for the conduct? If someone hit record, on, you know, like, so this is the, the picture is don't be caught with your pants around your ankles and then get really embarrassed when Jesus comes back. Like this is what I would call like an appropriate shame test, right? That if, if really it's something that God blesses, then there's no need to be embarrassed. But if this is something like this is, you, you talk about the smell test or the shame test or whatever, like this is part of our, our picture here is if Christ could come back at any moment like a thief, we should use as a decision-making framework for us this recognition that what if Christ came back and what I was doing was blank? Would it be like, welcome Lord Jesus? Or would it be like, oh, I wasn't calling on the wall? That's a good question to ask yourself as you're wrestling through this stuff. Because this is really the picture that we get here is, hey, God's coming any moment. His wrath is severe. And so, like, our moments really matter. The small things, the big things. Now I'm telling you, I know every person in this room, myself included, that we don't consistently apply that, right? Nobody becomes a Christian and stops sinning, right? The reason that you become a Christian is because you recognize you're sinning and you're asking the Lord Jesus to help you repent, right? That's, so all of us, probably in the next hour, we'll have like a kept our garments off moment where it's like, oh, you know, whoops. Or like active rebellion, sin, whatever that is. Uh, But the exhortation to sober up Stay awake, keep your pants on, is the whole deal here. And, and this is where I think we need to like really settle in. That these hailstones come and wreck and the Babylon falls and the city breaks. Flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder. The final bowl is poured out and the final perfect picture of God's wrath is poured out. And this is like where the word finished comes up. In 15, one, it's finished. In the end of 15, finished. And the, the angel cries out, it is 
done, that this revelation is the final revelation of God's wrath being poured out. We don't see any more sevens of wrath. This is the last one in this book. And it should conjure up for us this reality that God's wrath will be finally and fully poured out. The question is where and how. And these pictures of God's wrath actually really remind me of another time that God's wrath got poured out, right? The first thing that happens is that there's sores on the skin, and I'm reminded about how Christ was whipped and his skin was opened up. Then the sea and the rivers flow with blood, just like when Christ was pierced and blood and water for, pours out of his side. Then the sun grows hot and burns and scorches. And I'm reminded of when Christ on the cross absorbed the searing wrath of God on our behalf. And then the fifth seal, darkness comes over and people gnash their teeth. And I remember how it was darkness when Christ was being murdered on the cross in our place. And then in the, the, the sixth bowl is poured out and drought pours up and Christ on the cross cries out I thirst and then the seventh bowl is poured out and there's an earthquake and the way that Matthew talks about is that Christ's death and crucifixion the earth quakes and these pictures of God's wrath being poured out in the future on those who've been marked by the beast is the picture of God's wrath being poured out on Christ in our place. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, do I want my sins paid for by Christ on the cross or in me through the plagues when Jesus comes back and is destroying the evil in the world? Because Christ has truly stood in our place. And if you trust in him, you don't need to be afraid. But if you don't, and you probably do. Let me pray. Jesus, have mercy on us. I pray that we will worship with awe and wonder. God, keep us sober. Keep us vigilant. Give us grace and mercy. In your name we pray.